Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Ghost of Christmas Eve by J.M. Barry. A few years ago, as some may remember, a startling ghost paper appeared in the monthly organ of the Society for Haunting Houses. The writer guaranteed the truth of his statement, and even gave the name of the Yorkshire Manor House in which the affair took place. The article and the discussion to which it gave rise agitated me a good deal, and I consulted Pettigrew about the advisability of clearing up the mystery. The writer wrote that he distinctly saw his arm pass through the apparition and come out at the other side, and indeed I still remember his saying so next morning. He had a scared face, but I had presence of mind to continue eating my rolls and marmalade as if my briar had nothing to do with the miraculous affair. Seeing that he made a paper of it, I suppose he is justified in touching up the incidental details. He says, for instance, that we were told the story of the ghost which is said to haunt the house just before going to bed. As far as I remember, it was only mentioned at luncheon, and then sceptically. Instead of there being snow falling outside and an eerie wind wailing through the skeleton trees, the night was still and muggy. Lastly, I did not know until the journal reached my hands that he was put into the room known as the Haunted Chamber, nor that in that room the fire is noted for casting weird shadows upon the walls. This, however, may be so. The legend of the manor house ghost he tells precisely, as it is known to me. The tragedy dates back to the time of Charles I, and is led up to by a pathetic love story which I need not give. Suffice it that for seven days and nights the old steward had been anxiously awaiting the return of his young master and mistress from their honeymoon. On Christmas Eve, after he had gone to bed, there was a great clanging of the doorbell. Flinging on a dressing gown, he hastened downstairs. According to the story, a number of servants watched him and saw by the light of his candle that his face was an ashy white. He took off the chains of the door, unbolted it, and pulled it open. What he saw, no human being knows. But it must have been something awful, for without a cry, the old steward fell dead in the hall. Perhaps the strangest part of the story is this, that the shadow of a burly man holding a pistol in his hand entered by the open door, stepped over the steward's body, and gliding up the stairs disappeared. No one could say where. Such is the legend. I shall not tell the many ingenious explanations of it that have been offered. Every Christmas Eve, however, the silent scene is said to be gone through again and tradition declares that no person lives for twelve months at whom the ghostly intruder points his pistol. On Christmas Day, the gentleman who tells the tale in the scientific journal created some sensation at the breakfast table by solemnly asserting that he had seen the ghost. Most of the men present scouted his story, which may be condensed into a few words. He had retired to his bedroom at a fairly early hour, and as he opened the door, his candlelight was blown out. He tried to get a light from the fire, but it was too low, and eventually he went to bed in the semi-darkness. 
He was wakened, he did not know at what hour, by the clanging of a bell. He sat up in bed, and the ghost story came in a rush to his mind. His fire was dead, and the room was consequently dark. Yet by and by he knew, though he heard no sound, that his door had opened. He cried out, Who is that? But got no answer. By an effort, he jumped up and went to the door, which was ajar. His bedroom was on the first floor, and looking up the stairs he could see nothing. He felt a cold sensation at his heart, however, when he looked the other way. Going slowly and without a sound down the stairs was an old man in a dressing gown. He carried a candle. From the top of the stairs only part of the hall is visible, but as the apparition disappeared, the watcher had the courage to go down a few steps after him. At first, nothing was to be seen, for the candlelight had vanished. A dim light, however, entered by the long, narrow windows which flanked the hall door, and after a moment, the onlooker could see that the hall was empty. He was marvelling at this sudden disappearance of the steward, when, to his horror, he saw a body fall upon the hall floor within a few feet of the door. The watcher cannot say whether he cried out, nor how long he stood there, trembling. He came to himself with a start as he realised that something was coming up the stairs. Fear prevented his taking flight, and in a moment the thing was at his side. Then he saw indistinctly that it was not the figure he had seen descend. He saw a younger man in a heavy overcoat, but with no hat on his head. He wore on his face a look of extravagant triumph. The guest boldly put out his hand towards the figure. To his amazement, his arm went through it. The ghost paused for a moment and looked behind it. It was then the watcher realised that it carried a pistol in its right hand. It was by this time in a highly strung condition, and he stood trembling lest the pistol should be pointed at him. The apparition, however, rapidly glided up the stairs and was soon lost to sight. Such are the main facts of the story, none of which I contradicted at the time. I cannot say absolutely that I can clear up this mystery, but my suspicions are confirmed by a good deal of circumstantial evidence. This will not be understood unless I explain my strange infirmity. Wherever I went, I used to be troubled with the presentiment that I had left my pipe behind. Often, even at the dinner table, I paused in the middle of a sentence as if stricken with sudden pain. Then my hand went down to my pocket. Sometimes, even after I felt my pipe, I had a conviction that it was stopped, and only by a desperate effort did I keep myself from producing it and blowing down it. I distinctly remember once dreaming three nights in succession that I was on the Scotch Express without it. More than once, I know, I have wandered in my sleep, looking for it in all sorts of places, and after I went to bed I generally jumped out, just to make sure of it. My strong belief, then, is that I was the ghost seen by the writer of the paper. I fancy that I rose in my sleep lighted a candle and wandered down the hall to feel if my pipe was safe in my coat, which was hanging there. The light had gone out when I was in the hall. Probably the body seen to fall on the hall floor was some other coat, which I had flung there to get more easily at my own. 
I cannot account for the bell, but perhaps the gentleman in the haunted chamber dreamt that part of the affair. I had put on the overcoat before reascending. Indeed, I may say the next morning I was surprised to find it on a chair in my bedroom, also to notice that there were several long streaks of candle grease on my dressing gown. I conclude that the pistol, which gave my face such a look of triumph, was my briar, which I found in the morning beneath my pillow. The strangest thing of all, perhaps, is that when I awoke, there was a smell of tobacco smoke in the bedroom. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? So that was The Ghost of Christmas Eve by J.M. Barry. Now, you'll all have heard of J.M. Barry. So let me tell you a little bit about his biography. So James Matthew Barry was born in Kirimuir in Angus in northeast Scotland in 1860. His father was a weaver. Barry was one of nine children, though two of them actually died before he was born. And Barry's brother David died in an ice skating accident the day before Barry's 14th birthday. Apparently, Barry tried to comfort his mother by wearing his dead brother's clothes, whistling, as his brother used to, and taking on his mannerisms. In a biography of Barry, it's said that this, the, the idea that uh, David died as a young boy um, was a comfort to her in some ways because she, he'd never grow up in leaf her. So, therefore, we can see all that stuff about Peter Pan, because, of course, uh, Barry, in case you haven't twigged, is the same guy that wrote Peter Pan. So Peter Pan is, a, is his massive work and overshadows everything else. Barry was, a, uh, interesting facts, Barry was only five foot three. He seems a nice guy because um, he did lots of, um, he went to school in different parts of Scotland. He was at school in Glasgow, then at Forfa, then at Dumfries, and then he studied literature at Edinburgh. His family um, were religious, Calvinistic religious, and um, the, he, he was kind of suggested he should go into the church, into the ministry, but he didn't want to do it. He wanted to be an author. So he went to Edinburgh and studied uh, literature. And when he was there, he was writing reviews of drama because he was all, always very interested in, in theatre. So he wrote some stories, got some accepted, worked a bit as a journalist, but, be, you know, earned his living as a writer, but on and off. And Peter Pan was his big hit. He moved to London uh, Peter Pan was performed because, as I said, he came more to writing plays in 1904, although he'd, Peter Pan appears in a story called The White Bird before that, the character of Peter Pan, the boy who doesn't want to grow up. And it was a massive hit. Um, it was such a big hit that he earned a lot of money from it. And he moved to a, a house in Gloucester Road in um, South Ken. Funnily enough, I lived in a hostel there years ago, uh, just around the corner. And he used to go for walks in Kensington Gardens. Hence, you know, there's the statue of Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens now. And so that's a connection. He married uh, a woman, yes, whose name I can't remember. And, and, but unfortunately, she had an affair with a much younger man who she fell in love with. But Barry was so in love with her that he ended up giving her a divorce, even though he didn't want to, and he was apparently heartbroken. But he gave her an allowance every year, even after 
she married this other guy, this younger man. He then lived on his own and uh, lived until he was uh, 77 in London and died of pneumonia, but he was then ultimately buried in his home village with his, his kin up there in Kirimur. And he has two schools, the facts, he has two schools named after him. The Sir James Barry, oh, he was made a baronet in 1913 by King George V and became Sir J.M. Barry. He left the copyright of Peter Pan to the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital so they would benefit from it in perpetuity, in perpetuity, is that how you say it? So, okay. Yeah, two schools, one in Wandsworth in South London and the other in Silver Spring. And here's another weird connection. My dad, after he left Edinburgh, went to live and lived for many years in Silver Spring in Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. So there you go. Strange connections, eh? Somewhat tenuous, but there we are. Maybe I'm in somewhere linked to J.M. Barry. Anyway, the story itself, what's to be said? It's really short. I thought after the turn of the screw, I deserved I deserved a break, actually. Uh, I deserved to do something short, and I wanted to do a few Christmas stories before I embark on A Christmas Carol, which will be another big work. I might not get many in, but I thought I'd just do something very light like this. Now, this story, It Goes to Christmas Eve, you could say is is an anti-ghost story, but there is an honourable tradition of that. A lot of the gothic stories that became ghost stories actually revolved around finding a rational explanation for what appears to be supernatural. So to go to this haunted house, but it's just Scooby-Doo, isn't it? You know, and in the end, there is a rational explanation which may or may not be disclosed. In this case, he has the decency not to. Uh, I can't think of a pleasant metaphor for this. Rain on his parade, that'll do. There's other ones which aren't as nice. Oh, yeah, in case you didn't know, a briar is a pipe. And that reminds me, my uncle always used to smoke this pipe. It's possibly why he had a number of heart attacks and died. But there we are. Yeah, so a briar is a pipe. And when I first went to live in this hostel in Gloucester Road, I went to work for the civil service in London, and I had no suits. So there was a guy who was just retiring who in, in our home village and he he gave me his suits, which were fine. Uh, I had to have them taken in a bit because he was an older bloke. and But he smoked a pipe, so all the pockets had holes in them where his pipe, his briar, still hot with a few ashes in it, had burned holes in his suit pockets in the insides. You couldn't see it. There you go. So well, what that's worth. So yeah, it's not much of a story. It's a quite, it's a neat little story. It's a neat story in, in, in the sense of a tidy story. It may also be neat in the American sense as well. Yeah, no real ghost. Not even very Christmassy, really. It happens on Christmas Eve, but that's about the only uh, Christmassy reference. It could have happened any other time. So yeah, I was going through, I've got this uh, Ghost of Christmas um, anthology edited by Richard Dolby, who it was a great editor. I don't know, actually know if he's still alive. Uh, he may be. But he edited, a, a, he's got a good taste and he put together a lot of ghost stories. This one's got a number of stories that we did last year, even though I didn't have the, you know, Smee and um, uh, The Snow by Hugh Walpole. They're just a few as I flicked through. There's some Robert Louis Stevenson ones. So we may get time to do a few more of those. I'm rambling as usual. Now, don't forget that you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes via Substack or Patreon. 
And you can get a free download of my story, The Dalston Vampire, which isn't Christmassy either, although there's frost and snow in it. And uh, music-wise, as always, the beginning is Some Come Back by the Hartwood Institute. There's a link to all their dis- discography. They're, you know, Jonathan's amazingly prolific. In the, and he's done a three-track three recent one called Witch Season. The first one is called Circle of Protection. The, the last one is, has got um, the great Wiccan guy, um, Alexandrian witchcraft, technically not Wiccan, uh, Alex Sanders, who sounds completely crazed in, it, in the samples he uses. And then the middle one is called Crogling Grange because when we were doing Eerie Cumbrian, doing the live uh, ghost story readings, where Jonathan was doing the music for them, there's a story I used to read, which went down very well, based on a, an apparently true story mm-hmm, uh, called The Crogling Vampire. And this middle track of Jonathan's is called uh, Crogling Grange, based, based as he very graciously alludes to in on the thing to my story. But although, you know, that's nice for him to say that. The end music is The Ferryman by Dvoinik, um, a nice piece of uh, moody, ambient stuff there. I'm actually reaching out to some unsettling musicians to, to borrow their unsettling music. So I've just been in touch with uh, The Hair in the Moon. Uh, I've just bought some of their stuff on Bandcamp. I've just been listening to it, actually, when I was doing the notes for this. And, uh, yeah, so I'm hoping to feature some of their stuff as well. Anyway, there we are. I hope you're all well. I hope you're as locked down as you want to be. And we're going to try and generate a little bit of Christmas spirit over the next few weeks. Okay, I haven't got my Christmas decorations up yet, although many people round about have. But let's not get into that, because I'll be talking about that for another 10 minutes. So, okay, till next week. Bye-bye.